0: Hello, this is Alexis Dubief with the Precious Little Sleep Podcast, and today we're going to be talking about how sleep works. Now, before you pause, because you're probably thinking this is the dullest topic ever and you have no interest in sitting through 40 minutes of it, let me tell you that this may in fact be the most important podcast we've ever done, and if you're going to only ever listen to one podcast, this is the one that is worth your listening time. Why do I say that? Because sleep is complex, and the world is filled with advice and strategies and sleep consultations and all kinds of people trying to tell you how to help your child sleep better. And the only way you're going to be able to effectively assess whether that strategy or advice is on point for what is going on with your family is if you understand fundamentally how sleep works on a biological level. And I know that sounds dry, we're going to make it as lively as possible, but I promise you that the content in today's podcast is going to save you a lot of headache down the road and it's totally worth your time. So I hope you stick with us and join us for today's podcast. And today I am joined with by Ashby and Melissa. Say hi, guys. Hi. hi. So before I had kids, um, I sort of assumed that people just kind of fall asleep when they're tired, you know, that's just... You know, you're up late at night, you watch a movie, you're getting kind of tired, you go to bed, you fall asleep and bobs your uncle. There you go. And of course, then I had children and I realized that it wasn't nearly that straightforward. Um they weren't falling asleep uh barely ever and it took an enormous amount of effort to get them to fall asleep and then they woke up constantly. So clearly the whole idea of well, you know, you just kind of sleep when you're tired didn't pan out in terms of practical experience. And the reality is that sleep is actually a fairly complex phenomenon that we've only really gotten our hands around kind of how it works in like the last 10 to 15 years. Um, and understanding how sleep works will help you identify the, the problems or the, the issues that are keeping your child from sleeping well. So it's really, really key to have these insights. It also helps you evaluate you know, advice you're given in terms of, you know is this good advice or bad advice to take? really need to understand how sleep works so you can make that assessment. So, with that, let's jump in. So, sleep is a pretty complex affair, and you've probably heard the term sleep cycles bandied about, and the reason why we talk about that is that sleep is not a constant state. There's actually multiple different stages of sleep, and we move between them in quote-unquote a, a cyclical manner, you know, and the, the the non-technical term would be light sleep and, and deep sleep. You've, 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 Throughout the night, you're kind of cycling through light sleep, and then deep sleep, and light sleep, and then deep sleep. Um, The the more technical term for infants would be REM and non-REM. And REM means rapid eye movement, and that typically is a lighter phase of sleep where they're grunting and kicking and squirming or even maybe making vocalizations where you might think they're awake or you might think they're about to wake up. That's, That's the lighter sleep phase.
1: And then nobody tells you how noisy newborns are (laughs) when they're sleeping. Like it totally threw me for a loop when, when my first kid was born and he was like making all this noise in his sleep. And I'm like, what is this?
0: Yeah. I think, I think with, with my first, I think I was probably helping him quote unquote, helping him when he was in a light sleep phase, thinking he was like waking up when really he just was doing normal baby stuff. And I was interfering with the process because I didn't understand Um, all the squirming and the grunting
2: and good rule of thumb is if their eyes are closed, they're asleep. I know, I know that
0: seems like a simple rule of thumb, and yet it (laughs) wasn't obvious (laughs) to me.
1: Yeah, because you think, how can a sleeping baby make so much noise? Because all the sleeping babies that you see, like on TV or like we are friends, babies or whatever, they're so quiet. They just lie
0: like a lump on TV shows, right? That's not. Um, and so, so, so infants have a uh, a really high degree of a high percentage of their time is spent in this kind of REM or active sleep compared to adults. So they spend about half of their time in REM sleep. You know, adults are closer to twenty percent. So, simply put, your infants are sleeping much more lightly than we do, and they're frequently uh, cycling through these light sleep phases. Um, about every 50 minutes, which, whereas adults might do so every, you know, 110 minutes. So, you know, if you've ever talked to friends or heard people talk about how, well, their baby wakes up every day from every nap at 47 minutes on the nose, that's because that's one sleep cycle for that child. And they hit that light sleep phase and then they're up.
2: Um, yeah. And, to, and also I, what I've learned is that these this doesn't change immediately after infancy either. Like children sleep Typically don't uh, sleep as adults until near puberty.
0: Yeah. No, they don't hit yeah, maturity for sleep is somewhere around adolescence. But but newborns are dramatically like the gap between an adult sleep pattern and a newborn sleep pattern is pretty uh substantial.
1: That's um, what makes it so exhausting for us as adults because our sleep patterns are really different. So like for babies, it's no big deal to sleep in small chunks like that because they're like, Oh, Here's the end of my sleep cycle. Yeah. But for adults, like when you're woken up a lot, like that, Chaply, it really is hard.
0: Although our sleep cycles get short again when we get older, you know, like seventy. So I think we should all agree that when we're old, old ladies, we should move back in with our kids as payback. Be like, hey, I'm up, guys. What's happening? I can't sleep. Or or we can get up with our grandchildren. Yeah. Right. we'll be on the same cycle at that point um so uh so when so when kids cycle through this light sleep they're they're actually kind of awake and most you know babies and i'm talking like not just newborns but kids up until one are waking up will naturally organically wake up four to six times a night so when people say well my child's not sleeping through the night they still wake up two times a night to feed um the reality is your child's waking up six times a night However, four of those times they're falling back to asleep without your assistance, and then two of the times they're requesting to eat. So so we need to be awa- aware that our children are waking up far more frequently than we're even aware of and successfully navigating sleep for most of those arousals, which is great. that's really that's really positive,
1: yeah. sometimes people will talk about seeing their baby just like awake on the monitor. Like <laughs> now that everybody has video monitors, people will talk about seeing them awake and whether or not that's a problem. But really, if they're awake and they're putting themselves back to sleep, that is a good thing. That's and the that's the goal. Yes. That's the goal.
0: Um, Don't run in. Don't mess that up. I know. I know. <laughs> right. Ashby, where were you when my first was a baby? Cause I was totally messing that up. Where were you? <laughs> I was, I was up mucking around with my baby who just needed to be left alone. Um, so, so REM sleep again, which is the active sleep, which you tend to be waking up from. Um, Is less common in the first third of the night and more common in the back two thirds of the night. And what that means practically is you get your longest stretch of uninterrupted sleep just after your child has gone to bed, and then they're going to wake up with greater frequency as the night gets closer to morning. And of course, that becomes problematic for adults because most of our kids go to bed between seven and eight. Very few adults can go to bed at 7 in the evening. So we're not sleeping during their longest un- uninterrupted stretch of sleep. So, if, you know, your child wakes up at twelve, two, and 4, and you go to bed at 11, you're basically never sleeping. Um, whereas they've actually successfully slept without interruption from 7 p.m. till 12, which isn't a bad stretch. I mean, you know, depending on the age. So... Yeah,
2: that's what I think for real, for parents of really young children, If if it's if at all possible, I would – try to prioritize going to bed earlier if you can. I, I know people are always like, but I don't get my me time. It's like your me time will come. But right now, avoiding sleep deprivation psychosis is the priority. Yeah. And, you know, what is it's hard. Like, seven
0: o'clock is rough. I mean, come on. Yeah. Seven, like for seven, me, but, I...
2: you know, 11 is too late yeah. when you're be up four times between then and 6 a.m. Yeah.
1: It took me a long time to be able to fall asleep like earlier. And I still can't like, I have my bedtime at 10 and I can't, I can't fall asleep earlier than that, no matter how hard I try. So like, I think that's part of the problem too, is when you're an adult, your body clock is is set to fall asleep at a later time. And so even if you really want to sleep when your kid goes to sleep, it's hard. It's hard to sleep then.
0: I, I think my husband would naturally go to bed, could naturally go to bed at nine and not have an issue with it. Whereas Melissa, you and I are night owls. Like I'm, yeah. I'm happy. I'm happy staying up till midnight. It's not a problem, but it, it is, it is a problem. <laughs> <Yes.
1: I told
0: laughs> the staying up you. part is the easy part. It's the six, a.m. Yeah. part that bites me in the butt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyways, we so just have to understand that waking up frequently is, is just p- part of their immature sleep cycle. That's just part of being a baby and being a young child. And that's not a problem. That's how they're built. That's, that's just something we need to work with. um, on top of that, there's the issue of what makes us sleep. I mean, we, we know we get tired and we fall asleep, but it's not nearly that simple. And about 15 years ago, we discovered that there's a two-phase process of sleep, and they kind of work together uh, to make both night and nap sleep happen. So nap sleep is primarily driven by, um, well, it's cleverly called process S, but we just I just call it sleep drive. And what it basically means is the drive to sleep accumulates the longer that you're awake until you are able to fall asleep. So throughout the day in my head, I visualize it like a balloon that's gradually inflating as you're awake and then deflates when you take a nap or when your child takes a nap more accurately. So you know, you wake up in the morning at six in the morning, and your seven-month-old is awake for an hour and a half. And during that hour and a half, their, their sleep drive is accumulating to the point where they can successfully fall asleep and take a nap. And as they're napping, that sleep drive deflates, and then they wake up refreshed, and you go about your day for another two, two and a half hours. And during that time, the sleep drive accumulates again. And this process happens, you know, throughout the day as you continue to take naps um, until it's time for bed. And the things that uh, are pretty unique about this this accumulated sleep drive is, uh, one, the amount of time it takes increases uh, as the day goes on. So typically the shorter um, duration of wake time in the morning uh, will increase as the day goes on until you have your longest duration of wake time just prior to bedtime. It also increases as your child gets older i mean obviously newborns can only be awake for a very short amount of time maybe for some as short as 45 minutes before their sleep drive has accumulated to the point where they need to take a nap whereas you know a two-year-old might be awake for six and a half hours before they're ready to take a nap um so so the amount of time it takes to accumulate that significant drive to sleep increases with age and of course you know it increases until the point where you don't actually need to nap anymore. And then you're awake for 12, 13 hours before you sleep again. Um, So this is why I'm constantly coming back to, you know, how long have you been awake between naps? What time, how long are you awake before bedtime? Because we're trying to triangulate, does your child have enough wake time to accumulate a significant enough sleep drive to fall asleep and stay asleep? And a lot of people get tripped up by this concept.
2: And this is, I think, where people get tripped up too with the too early bedtime concept. While it's true that we don't want our kids going to bed, kids tend to go to bed early. Um, sometimes people get in the mode where they think earlier bedtime is better such that the child hasn't accrued enough sleep debt. There's not enough time between that last nap and bedtime.
0: Yeah. yeah or the and last that's nap why it, is really late, right? They're taking a nap at six yeah. o'clock and they're wondering why their kid can't fall asleep at seven Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh so this the sleep drive um is is really important but it's not it's not the only thing that drives sleep. Um the second portion of sleep is called the circadian rhythm. Now, circadian actually means about a day. So there, we actually have many biological circadian rhythms, but for whatever reason when people say circadian rhythm, they're almost exclusively referring to the sleep circadian rhythm. So, um so I guess that's kind of our shorthand for sleep circadian rhythm. There are actually other biological processes that, that kind of cycle through the day. Um, And the circadian rhythm is a fairly complex sort of hormonal regulatory system that regulates many, many things, hunger, sleep, a whole bunch of internal hormonal processes. Um, But it really drives night sleep. Uh, If, If the circadian rhythm didn't exist, let's say, and all sleep was driven by this accumulated sleep drive, then we would basically nap around the clock. So, you know, you would just constantly be like awake for a chunk, sleep for a chunk, awake for a chunk, sleep for a chunk. The circadian rhythm is what makes it possible for us to fall asleep and stay asleep for a long and uninterrupted stretch during the night. So, you know, most small children are sleeping 10 to 12 hours at night. That is happening because of the combination of the sleep, accumulated sleep drive and the circadian rhythm. Um, when you fall asleep at the same time every day, your body is going to produce hormones that will make it almost impossible not to fall asleep. And the circadian rhythm is also what is going to help you stay asleep uh, during the night where sleep drive would have been insufficient to keep you you know, sleeping for that whole chunk. Um, so I'm always encouraging people to have a committed bedtime to say this is the time we go to bed and really stick to that. Uh, Because anytime we're deviating from our consistent bedtime that we've sort of regulated our body around, we're throwing off our circadian rhythm and the circadian rhythm is very powerful. So you want it to be Uh, as aligned with your sleep goals as possible. Now, anytime you deviate, let's say, you know, it's a holiday or we went to grandma's house and we blew bedtime by a few hours, you're basically giving your child what what I call like baby jet lag. I mean, that's what we're talking about here is sleeping off of our body rhythms. You know, if our body is wired to go to bed at 7.30 and now we're going to bed at 9.30, our sleep is misaligned with the kind of hormone secretion and it's gonna be harder to fall asleep and stay asleep. We're also now, sort of untraining our body about what time is really bedtime, which is going to make it harder for the next couple of days. So on the one hand, it's a bummer to be like a super like consistent, (laughs) like militant sleep mom and always have bedtime be the same time. And people want to like do special fun events. The other hand is there's a price to be paid. So you want to sort of balance out, you know, the consistency with, you know, um, some, you know, how much fun we're having with the family and the holidays and that kind of a thing.
2: And and this is why uh, when we talk about sleep training, uh, even if your bedtime at current is not the ideal bedtime for your family, it's best not to make that big change when sleep training, because you've already a stiff, you've had that consistent bedtime, even if it's not ideal, you have those two sleep factors lining up. Maybe it's at 10 p.m. Mm -hmm. If we change that drastically, they won't line up then and it will be a rough go initially.
0: You know, in an extreme case, sometimes there's younger babies who have a bedtime, and it's consistent, but it's consistently like two in the morning, and it sucks, and these parents do not want to be parenting a baby, you know, at midnight and two in the morning, and they're trying to, like, shoehorn this kid into falling asleep at seven, because, like, all Mm -hmm. the books say seven, and of course, they would vastly prefer that, and they're wondering why it's not working, like, oh, we keep trying to put him down at seven, he's treating it like a nap, and I'm like, well, yeah, because his body clock says that's nap time. That's that's basically, you know, noon for that child, right? It's like the middle of the day for that kid. So, you can't just shift your body clock ahead, you know, 5 hours in one fell swoop. Um, you know, you have to make these changes gradually because this circadian rhythm is it needs time to kind of adjust to uh, mm-hmm. to what your goals are. I was going to say so the circadian rhythm is is based on regularity having a consistent bedtime is one piece of it. It's actually influenced by you know, uh, timing of a lot of events, when you eat, how much you eat, exposure to light, et cetera. And exposure to light is one of the biggest tools we have to influence the timing of the circadian rhythm. And without getting too far afield on this topic, I just want to point out that bright light exposure is hugely influencing for this. So um, as a general rule of thumb, Uh, Bright light exposure in the early morning will shift your circadian clock up, meaning push bedtime earlier, and bright light exposure late in the late afternoon or early evening will push it back. Now, the only reason I mention that here is not to get into a big conversation about how we can use light exposure to help combat jet lag or work with daylight savings, but really to say, if your goal is to have your child fall asleep easily at bedtime, Bright light or outside playtime just prior to bedtime is not helpful. Like if my target is for my nine-month-old to fall asleep at seven thirty at night, seven o'clock at night is not a good time for us to play in the park, <laughs> or television, <laughs> or television, or any bright light, you know, hitting the retina. Um, so yeah, TV time, outside time, not great for just prior to bedtime. Uh, conversely, going outside to play first thing in the morning is actually a bang-up idea. Uh, especially if you're trying to shift bedtime earlier. So just be mindful about kind of bright lights, TV, you know, sunny play, play dates outside and when they're happening throughout the day. Um,
1: I think it's um, important to mention too that it, it's not, your circadian rhythm is not fully in action when you're born. It doesn't really kick in until about eight weeks, but then eight weeks, from forever. Your circadian rhythm is a thing with your six-month-old and with your six-year-old and even with you as an adult. Like if you as mom or dad are struggling to fall asleep at night, it can really help you to lock in a consistent bedtime. I know it's helped me a lot.
0: So thank you so much for bringing that up because that's a great point. So parents of newborns will often complain about the fact that their child is awake Uh, for long stretches of time in the middle of the night, you know, like, it's not uncommon to have a newborn who's awake from 12 to 3am every night, or might even have two periods of being awake, where they're awake from, they go to quote, unquote, bed at seven, and then they're awake from 10 to 12. And then they're awake again from, you know, four to six. And then they take a huge quote, unquote, nap from 6am till noon, you know, And, um, of course, you know, as adults, this is a brutally punishing sleep schedule because no one's sleeping, right? I mean, the child's sleep is not lined up with ours at all. And the reason is, as Melissa pointed out, that infants are born without uh, a fully functioning circadian rhythm. So they are effectively napping throughout the day. And that means that they might have their longest chunk of sleep in the middle of the day. They might be awake for long periods in the middle of the night. And parents obviously hate this. I mean, this is unpleasant and miserable, and they're constantly looking for ways to fix this. Like, I need to fix this. And the reality is you don't fix that. Time fixes that. That is a developmental milestone that happens pretty organically. Um, You can sort of nudge it in the right direction by making sure that you are exposing your baby to bright light during the day. And that happens pretty naturally. The sun is up, You know, our homes are brightly lit. That's gonna happen naturally. You can also help it by not using a lot of bright light when they are awake in the middle of the night. So, you know, if our kid is going to be up from midnight till two in the morning, um, we don't want to have every light in the house on. We want to keep things kind of dim and quiet uh, because that light exposure is really powerful. But the reality is that newborns are in this sort of disrupted chunky sleep pattern because they're newborns and we just need to give them time, um, which as you mentioned happens about about two months in. So. Uh, so we, you know, we grin and bear it, but it's not, it's not a problem. It's just simply a reflection of where they're at developmentally at that point in time. So at bedtime, when we have a consistent bedtime and we have an age appropriate wake time prior to bedtime, we've basically teed up our children to fall asleep and stay asleep as easily as possible. Those are the two things you can do to really set them up for success. Age appropriate wake time prior to bedtime, consistent bedtime. And that does mean, by the way, that making sure they're not taking late naps that are going to encroach upon that wake time and diminish their sleep drive heading into bedtime. It also means, you know, as soon as you're starting to see a consistent pattern develop for when your child's falling asleep, that you want to lean into that and really try to make bedtime the same time every night as much as possible. And when I say the same time, I mean like plus or minus 15 minutes. Sometimes people will say, well, we have a consistent bedtime. It's between 7 and 8.30 and like, well, you know, that's a, that's a range of time. I mean, a consistent bedtime is, well, we we are, our child goes to sleep between 7.30 and 7.45. To me, that's a consistent
1: bedtime. Yeah. Like you wouldn't go to the store and the store says, well, we open between (laughs) nine and noon. And then you'd be like, what time does this store open? This is the worst store. I hate you. Yeah. Um,
0: and typically, you know, people can, again, things vacillate a bit for the first few months, but typically around three months, you start to see a pattern of when bedtime is start to develop. And if you don't see it happen organically, you want to start of maybe kind of nudge things in that direction. Um, so, you know, definitely starting around three months, definitely by four to six months, you know, bedtime should kind of be a, a known quantity. Like, this is what time we go to bed. It might be later. Sometimes early younger babies are taking late naps, so bedtime might not be until nine. But the point is that it's consistent. All right. So circadian rhythm, sleep drive, those are the two things that make our sleep happen. Um... But there's some other issues that kind of muck things up. And the two terms that uh, I think we all sort of use interchangeably are object permanence and sleep associations. And truthfully, I couldn't find any really good information that kind of pulled apart like, like are these really distinct concepts or are they just kind of two sides to the same coin? So I'm gonna continue to sort of use them interchangeably. And the basic gist is this. As we've mentioned, babies are waking up four to six times a night. And that's just naturally part of their sleep architecture. And how they fall asleep uh, has a huge influence on how able or unable they are to fall back to sleep when they wake up four to six times a night. So when newborns are born, we can help them fall asleep. We can rock them, we can nurse them, we can give them a bottle, we can use pacifiers, we can pat their butts like a tom-tom. We can bounce on yoga balls. All of these are perfectly reasonable and successful ways to help babies fall asleep. And it works, and they sleep well, and all is well with the world. What happens, however, as your child gets closer to four to six months is their brains are maturing, and they're developing skills that they didn't have when they were newborns. And one of those skills is object permanence, which means that they remember what was happening before they fell asleep. So if they fall asleep nursing, and then you you know you wait until they're like a limp piece of bacon, and then you place them gently into the crib and sneak out the room, they're going to happily sleep for a little while. Because as we've mentioned, the early part of the night uh, has less REM sleep. So they're sleeping more deeply in the early part of the night. But then starting around, let's say 11 o'clock at night, they're going to wake up, in demand to eat and you're going to reasonably go well they must be starving i mean it's been three hours i'm going to go feed them and then they're going to wake back up at 12 o'clock and demand to eat like, wow gosh they just ate an hour ago but i guess he's hungry i'm gonna go feed him and then we're gonna do the same thing at one o'clock and two o'clock and three o'clock and eventually you get to the point where you're like wow we're feeding this child seven times a night how hungry can they be and you start wondering oh sorry go ahead
2: it's we're feeding more than we did at three months
0: now right you have more feedings than you used to have uh and then you but you start what like people have all kinds of theories about what might be happening maybe my milk supply is dropping maybe they're going through a growth spurt maybe they're teething I don't understand why are they eating so much well you know we got to keep feeding them he's hungry so and if we try to do anything but feed them like if we send the partner in to go deal with it you know The partner has zero success helping this child go back to sleep, who is now furious and screaming. And the only thing that calms him down is more nursing, so we just keep nursing. Well, the reality is is this is a child who isn't falling asleep independently. We're nursing this child to sleep. And now this child, who was happily nursed to sleep at three months, is a six-month-old. And the six-month-old child has figured out a new skill. And that is they are now capable of remembering what was happening when they fell asleep. And they know that something has changed. That when they wake up at 11 o'clock, they fell asleep in mom's arms, nursing, life was good. They wake up at 11 o'clock, and from their point of view, something mysterious has happened. Mom has disappeared. She has been teleported into an alternate dimension by aliens, and this is a cause for great distress. So the baby calls out for mom, who comes running back in. And then mom recreates the scene that was happening at bedtime by picking up the child and nursing. And thus, the child is able to successfully fall back to sleep. And this cycle continues throughout the night for months
2: or years. Balance, it continues for years because it's not when they're six months old, it might be nursing to sleep. And when you have a four year old, it might manifest as you're sitting by the child's bed or you're sitting in the child's bed as they fall asleep. They wake up at midnight. Where's the parent? Now they're mobile, they come to your room. Mm -hmm. That's how it manifests later on. Exactly, so what happens at bedtime
0: sets the course for all of the night wakings later in the night. And as we mentioned, children wake up four to six times a night, and when a child isn't falling asleep independently at bedtime, they won't be able to fall back asleep independently those four to six times a night, and this pattern can persist for years. And a lot of times, probably the number one question we get on the Facebook group is, well, when will my child sleep through the night? And my answer is always, well, when are you going to teach your child how to fall asleep without you? Because that that's the answer to that question. There are children who are falling asleep independently and who are sleeping through the night between six to eight months. And there are children in kindergarten who aren't falling asleep independently and who can't sleep through, sleep through the night and they're in elementary school. So... The answer is really, really dependent upon what's happening at bedtime and um, and, and changing that is, is crucial. So the object permanence is specifically referring to the ability to remember what was happening before. Um, and this
2: also manifests as a daytime phenomenon where before you could plop your baby down, go to the bathroom, come back, baby was fine. Now as soon as you leave their sight, your baby remembers you were there and starts crying for you. So I think people often say, oh, you know, I can't change anything at bedtime now because there's separate, separation anxiety during the day. And the reality is the separation anxiety and the poor sleep are caused by the same thing, which is the object permanence. And what one of the classic tasks for this
0: ability, and there's, you know, there's kind of like ranges of mastery of object permanence. It's not like you don't have it and then you do have it. It's sort of like any skill. You sort of get better at it as time goes on. But one of the classic tests is to take a toy that the child's really interested in and to hide it under a blanket in full view of them. Like, while they're watching, you put it under a blanket and see if they look for it. Because a newborn, you know, a newborn's not going to look for it. They're not even going to be aware that it exists. The minute it goes under the blanket, it has ceased to exist in their world. But, you know, a four- to six-month-old child is going to pick up the blanket to look for it because they remembered that you just put it there. So that's a fun test you can do. So baby tricks. Useful baby tricks. Put toy under blanket.
1: Uh, That's so why sleep- peekaboo is so much fun.
0: That's why peekaboo is so much fun. You yes. get huge laughs. You slay. Look at me. I'm slaying with this peekaboo game.
1: <laughs> um,
0: so sleep associations is just a different kind of way of looking at this. To say, if your child associates certain activities or environments with falling asleep, um, then they're going to expect to have those same activities or environments present when they wake up four to six times throughout the night. So a more classic example of that is there are some people who sort of cuddle and co-sleep their child as they're falling asleep. And then when they're a limp piece of bacon, they sleep them into the crib and creep out of the bedroom. And uh, again, that works like gangbusters for a couple of hours. But then the child wakes up at 10 and is like, wait a minute, I was in mom's bed. How did I get here? And they freak out. And of course, the only thing that's going to help is by bringing that child back into your bed with you. And parents will interpret it this as, well, they must hate their crib or separation anxiety. You know, like, he can only sleep with me. He has to be with me. And the thing is, you've established that by helping him fall asleep by lying on your chest or cuddling with you in your bed. So it's not that he can't fall asleep without you. It's because he's not falling asleep without you that he's finding the crib so
1: disagreeable. And other kids will figure this out, and they'll just decide that they're never going to sleep again because they know what's going to happen when they fall asleep and wake up and they're like my oldest was like that he just he went from sleeping to just screaming until he passed out in my arms he didn't want to nurse to sleep anymore because he knew that after he nursed to sleep that i would put him down and then when he woke up he wouldn't be there so he was just like i am gonna keep from sleeping for as long as i possibly can So
0: I've coined the term uh, hypervigilance, which it, this is not like a scientific phenomenon, but it's just simply something I've observed, just as Melissa said, which is that as this pattern continues, where you fall asleep in one situation or one space or with one activity, and then you wake up and it is mysteriously missing, um, that this is a really unpleasant feeling. Something shocking and unpleasant has occurred. It's a mystery and an alarming experience for these kids. And what happens is they start fighting sleep more and more and more because they don't want this surprise. This is like a bad surprise, right? Like good surprises, hey, you want a car, good surprise. Wake up, mom is seriously missing, bad surprise. And so what happens is as this pattern continues, it gets harder and harder and harder to fall asleep at that time and harder to get them to fall back to sleep in the middle of the night. And that's where you'll see people who say, well, you know, we nursed at night, but the second her butt hits the crib, she's wide awake. And that's because your nine-month-old or 12-month-old is now fighting sleep and making sure they're keeping an eye on you because they're afraid you're going to try to sneak out.
2: And this manifests as Melissa's screaming six-month-old, mm-hmm. but it also manifests as your three-year-old that requires you to tiptoe out of their room with
1: extreme
2: stillness over the course of forty. 45- minutes.
1: And then you're like almost free, and then they're like, Where are you going? Yep. Where are you going, mom?
0: Somebody shared a video on Facebook, and it got, you know, thousands of likes. Everybody was like, oh, it's so precious. And it was probably a 9- to 12-month-old child who was sleeping with mom in the crib. And every time mom moved, uh, the child kind of woke slightly and, like, reached out and grabbed mom right like it was like physically like trying to hold on to mom and it was like oh isn't this precious she loves her mom look at this cute thing and and i'm looking at this with completely different lens and i'm like this is not cute this is a child who is sleeping in a light sleep because she's trying to keep an eye on mom to prevent mom has clearly snuck out a million times There comes a point where you don't want to lie down with your child for every nap. You have things to do and a life to lead. So parents are sneaking out. They cuddle them to sleep and then sneak out. This child has wised up to that sneaking out thing and is now basically barely sleeping so she can stay awake enough to make sure mom doesn't sneak out. So to me, I'm not thinking this is cute and sweet and charming and isn't this lovely. I'm thinking this is a child who can't sleep because she's got to keep an eye on mom. This is hypervigilance and it's not good for the mom who can't sneak out anymore because sneaking out has failed as a strategy and it's not good for the child who's barely sleeping so she can keep make sure she's keeping an eye on mom. Uh, so again, fundamental under, misunderstanding of how sleep works leads to vastly different interpretation. Thousands of people on Facebook are like, "Oh, And then Alexis is over here going, "No, not a good thing here. No. <laughs> so, so what's happening at bedtime is is and when I say bedtime, I should say more accurately, when your child falls asleep, this is true for nap time, this is true for bedtime. What is the circumstance under which they are falling asleep? if they are falling asleep independently, if they are falling asleep in the same location they're gonna wake up later in the night, they will be able to navigate those brief arousals, those cycling through light sleep or REM sleep and fall back to sleep without assistance. If something has changed in their environment, either you were there and you're not, they were in your bed, now they're not, there was a a mobile that was playing that has turned off, there was music that was playing that has turned off, Uh, there was a pacifier in their mouth that fell out, any change in their environment is gonna cause them to fully rouse themselves at each of those light sleep phases and only be able to fall asleep, typically A, with significant assistance, and B, when you've recreated the situation that was happening at bedtime. And this is the key here. You cannot fix this problem in the middle of the night. It all starts at bedtime. So if you've nursed to sleep at bedtime, and you try not to nurse back to sleep at 2 in the morning, you're going to have a child who is rightfully furious with you. So none of these challenges are solved at 2 in the morning. Everything starts at bedtime. And when we look at how sleep works and what's happening with sleep associations and object permanence, it becomes pretty obvious, right? They fell asleep nursing. Now they need to fall asleep with nursing throughout every light sleep phase throughout the night. And that is the key to night sleep. And that is the key to managing nap schedules. Those, you know, so there you, there you have it. Everything you need to know, we have just covered in the last 35 minutes. Seriously. We're just, and this
2: yeah. it is the, it is the fundamental, uh, cross sleep problem. It's the number one sleep problem. It's the number one cause of sleep problems that often when you see people asking, uh, why they're, you know, six, nine month-old, two-year-old won't sleep, you know, very often it's because of the sleep association at bedtime. It's common. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it's all right. It's fixable. But you can't, You like Alexa said, you can't start at 2 a.m. And it's
0: tricky, yeah. by the way. It's not always obvious. We the, There are a lot of times you'll see with toddlers um, that they're sleeping fairly well, falling asleep independently, but then the parents have a new baby. And the new baby, you know, disrupts everybody's world quite a bit so now we have a three-year-old who was falling asleep on their own who now is insisting that moms stick around until they fall asleep and of course moms may be feeling guilty because she's not as available for the three-year-old because there's a newborn involved so she's like okay buddy just this one time or just for this weekend sure thing but and they stick around at bedtime <clears throat> well now we have a three-year-old who's going to be waking up in the middle of the night and screaming out and you know like the parents are like, Oh my God, I think, I think our toddler's having night terrors. And I'm like, no, yeah. no, there's no night terrors. What's happening is they're no longer falling asleep independently. And so when they're cycling through light sleep, they're freaking out because you've mysteriously disappeared. And you know, the the screaming is not because of the d- night terrors. It's because they're half asleep, but also rightfully upset, uh, because of how they're falling asleep at bedtime. Sleep associations can also be really tricky. I was speaking to a lovely couple last week and, um, beautiful sleep hygiene right like just doing all the right things um but they still had i think a 15 month old who was up during the night and things were terrible and they're like why what is happening he falls asleep on his own what's the problem and we determined collectively that the problem was the chair their sleep routine occurs in a chair and even though he's awake when he goes into his crib He strongly associates that chair with sleep. And then he wakes throughout the night and can only fall back asleep while being held in the chair. And I said, I know he's falling asleep on his own in the crib, but I swear to you, I think this chair is a problem. Let's take the chair out of the room and do our whole routine sitting on the floor, no chair. So they do this the first night thinking the routine is the same. The wait time is the same. Nothing has changed except one piece of furniture has been removed from the room. This child cried for 45 minutes. At bedtime. Now that sucks, of course. Nobody wants their 14-month-old, you know, 15-month-old crying for 45 minutes. But the fact that he was that upset about the chair not being part of the process conclusively told us that, yes, the chair was the association. And that was why he couldn't fall back to sleep in the middle of the night without being held in his chair until he was completely dead asleep. So problem solved when the chair was removed. But Again, sometimes these things are not obvious because who thinks like the chair is the problem? He's completely awake going into the crib. But you know, when we, the answer to what the problem is, is answered by what are they requiring in the middle of the night? That's the clue about what the problem is at bedtime. So whatever they need at two in the morning, we got to remove that from bedtime.
1: Yeah. And if you still don't, can't visualize this just think you fall asleep in your bed and then you wake up in a swimming pool that's what it's like that's what it's like for kids who fall asleep one way at bed and then wake up another way that's how disorienting it is for them so that's why they have such a hard time falling back asleep because you would be disoriented if you woke up in a swimming pool i'd be very I unhappy
0: it. very unhappy to be waking up in the swimming pool uh as would probably the people who own the pool also be very happy <laughs> many, many unhappy people in that scenario.
2: Uh,
0: So just to recap briefly, right? So kids spend a lot more time in light sleep than we do. They are naturally going to wake up four to six times a night. Uh, Sleep is primarily driven during the day by sleep pressure, which accrues as you're awake. And at night is driven both by the combination of sleep pressure and the circadian rhythm newborns do not have mature circadian rhythm it takes a few months for that to really come online so you're going to get some wonky night wakings for the first few months but the answer to that is really just developmental and light exposure keep the lights dark at night when they're up and bright in the morning in the day when they're awake and wait for a couple of months your newborn will figure out the circadian rhythm because all mammals do and uh And really combining this understanding of sleep with the concept of independent sleep at bedtime is crucial to quality night sleep. Newborns, we can rock, nurse, bounce, cuddle, feed, whatever. We can do whatever we need to to help them safely fall asleep at bedtime. But between four to six months, those strategies will fail you and will continue to fail you for years to come. And you can, you know, continue to wake up and uh, help your, one, two, three, four, five-year-old fall back asleep for years, or you can address the root issue, which is we need to foster independent sleep at bedtime to improve our night sleep outcomes for our children, to improve our nap duration for our children. And this is not an issue, you know, once your child is six to eight months, this is not an issue that we're asking them to do something that's developmentally inappropriate. It's the issue of they haven't learned how to fall asleep without our assistance. And, and that really is the root problem for 98% of parents uh, who are trying to figure out how to help their sleep better, their children sleep better. How your child falls asleep at bedtime determines how you sleep at night. So it should come as no surprise when I tell you that that is a topic, how to foster independent sleep, how to help your child fall asleep without you, that we are going to delve into in great detail in the next couple of podcasts. There are many paths to learning independent sleep at bedtime. Some work better than others. We are going to dive into all or most of them uh, to help you figure out what is the best plan for you? What is a reasonable expectation for what will come when you make these changes? And how will you know if it's working? And if it's not working, how do we modify it so that it does work? So I hope that's been useful. And Stay tuned or subscribe so you can catch up to those super meaty, juicy podcasts that we've got planned that will delve into how to foster independent sleep for your toddler, child, or preschooler. Are you interested in everything sleep and parenting? Want to help your kids sleep better? Keen to learn from experts and best-selling authors? then subscribe to the Precious Little Sleep podcast on iTunes. You can learn more by visiting the website www.preciouslittlesleep.com forward slash podcast to find all episodes, show notes, and substantial additional resources. Got a suggestion or question you would like us to tackle? Drop a note on the website. And finally, if this was helpful to you, please support the podcast by leaving a
1: review on iTunes. Cheers and tally ho!